Hello everyone, it's February 25th, 2020. This week we're catching back up with the Insight Lander and its mole that won't dig. And we'll catch back up with Laura Forsick. She's written a book about the rise of millennials and what that means for the future of space. So onward and upward and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 249 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So I guess this week we're not going to talk in depth about uh, the most recent SpaceX launch of the Starlink 4 batch, but maybe we have some thoughts on it, but there's not much to say. So I don't know if you watched it live. I can't actually remember if I did. I did see it shortly after, but I'm not sure if it was actually live. I think I was like 20 minutes late. I managed to just because I was, uh, I had just gotten to my office and was starting to do work and then saw that the... Uh... Yeah, launch was in 10 minutes. I'm like, oh, cool. I think I did see it live because I remember watching in, like, waiting for the first stage to come down. Mm -hmm. Definitely came down, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess that means I didn't know what was going to happen next, but uh, mm -hmm. I saw sea spray and then nothing. Mm -hmm. And I was like, all right, well, it must have happened close by. But then in the replay, you could see it actually, you know. I mean, you couldn't see it quite, but you could see just off camera that there was a lot of mm. stuff being thrown up. So Live, I missed that. <laughs> I, I I just I you, just you didn't notice it. Quite paying attention. Yeah, I was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think my focus was more towards the uh, the you know the center of the frame. Well, this one was kind of fun because somebody on uh, the Space Question subreddit was like, "Hey, this is my location. I just saw this really weird thing in the sky. It was like a bunch of lights all following each other at you know regular intervals, and they were going about as fast as the ISS. And I thought the first one was the ISS. What what the heck was <laughs> this? And everybody's like, "Oh, that's Starlink." Like, yeah. that's that's an easy one <laughs> when people give like really vague descriptions of like clouds and shit we're like okay well you got to tell us more but that's uh, everybody's like yeah easy i think it was starlink 3 made the local news because it was uh you could see it at dawn and people cool. were kind of freaking out about it <laughs> i i still haven't gotten to see it yet yeah no me neither and i uh i, I tried i planned to watch uh starlink 4 and then just Something got in the way, and <laughs> I got distracted, and that was that was the end of that. But uh, hopefully next week we'll have some more information on what went wrong, because I'm really curious to know, uh, mm. considering that it was still a controlled landing, it just wasn't on the drone ship. My guess is they're going to reveal what happened between our recording and airing the show, and so <laughs> I wasn't going to be yelling at the at their I feel podcast. like that happens a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's move on to an old topic we've discussed several times, which is insight and its mole problem, right? So <laughs> you had the idea, Dennis, and I think I had it too, which was why not just hold it down and push it in? Mm-hmm. And that's what they're doing. So I guess just to recap, the mole is, you know, the little probe that goes into the ground and it's supposed to get down to what? Like, I don't remember how many meters. Uh, like three a meters, lot. I think. I thought it was more than that. But yeah, I would say at least three meters I like down. 10, I thought it was 10 feet, three meters. Oh, here we go. Split the difference. Five meters. How about that? Five meters. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, so it's supposed to burrow down to a depth of about five meters, um, but something is preventing that and they can't seem to make it, you know, like even a few inches. So... I guess maybe a few inches is as far as it's made it. Yeah, and that's it. That's the thing is it's they've had some success with other methods and they've gotten down and then it's backed itself out and they've gotten it back down a little bit. Then it's back and it's mm -hmm. kind of it's it's being uh, a little brat, basically. Do you think that that means that there's probably just a rock obstructing it? I, I think it's I think it's going to be more complicated than a rock, because if it was a rock, it would kind of have a bottom out distance and it wouldn't go past that. But since it goes up and down and up and down. I'm thinking it's some weird uh, result of backfilling from sand or 
you know, some weird property of of the regolith itself that yeah, that's what they've essentially diagnosed it to be what they call duracrust. Yeah, and right. So there's right. this this cemented soil. There's a layer of it that's uh, you know not at the surface, but down enough that it can go that ten inches or so, and then it keeps encountering this duracrust and rebounding back up. And so rebounding in slow motion. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, because I mean that was the thing that I had to you know wrap my brain around is well how come after it hits the dura crust okay so I let's step back right so after failing to penetrate any further they removed the support structure this has been many months ago that this happened earlier last year and then uh, they saw that it was just kind of spinning the wheels so to speak and not really going any further so then the big step that they did was to try to then pin it with the arm to give it that friction that it needs to not rebound too badly but then it would still rebound almost entirely out of the hole uh after they give it the order to do and many uh, uh hammers hammer strikes i don't know a couple of good waxes right? yeah there you go <laughs> and so um yeah i guess what's happening then is it must be hitting this dura crust which is then uh kind of loosening the pinning mm-hmm. and then it's just kind of bouncing back and back and back and back uh from the stuff that kind of fills in underneath there and so that's kind of how i interpreted why wouldn't it hit the dura crust and then kind of just bounce back but then once it's no longer touching that dura crust just stay in place and not keep going back yeah it's uh it's a weird kind of situation and the fact that the public is a little confused about it uh, seems pretty correct because NASA's a little bit confused about it. Yeah, one thing I didn't realize, though, is that they can't push on it as hard as they'd like to because they placed it as far from the landing platform mm. as possible. And so uh, as a result, it's kind of, you know, torquing itself at a, an angle. It can't get as much, uh, put as much force down the, as it wants to. The arm, to. they can't get as much leverage on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, they want it to apparently stay out of the, uh, the lander's uh, shadow landing mm. platform shadows so that way they can you know because it's all about measuring the thermal properties so they wanted to not have that uh, messing with their science results but yeah so now we joked <laughs> about <laughs> why don't we just push the damn thing and apparently they're confident enough that they can characterize where the arm is relative to the uh, back cap of the mole and be able to apply pressure because they were gonna have to do that eventually too right i mean you can pin the mole from the side until the mole gets, you know, entirely underground. And mm-hmm. then at that point, they were going to, they couldn't pin it anymore. And so they knew that eventually they'd have to probably, you know, push on the, uh, the back cap. Oh, another thing we talked about when we were just spitballing ideas is why not, you know, just scoop up some regolith and mm-hmm. pour it on in there. And they, they did, uh, two, uh, ways of that, or they, they did two experiments, they called it in the blog, in the blog post, where one was to just basically press on the uh, the soil just around the hole and see if you can go and compress it and kind of collapse the hole a little bit that way, which worked. And then they also, I would have loved to see, I didn't notice any gifts of this, but like for them to, they actually scraped together some of the soil and then hmm. pushed it in the hole. <laughs> so, you know, this is just people being clever with what they got to work with essentially you know they have a perfectly like usable scoop there i mean that's what's on the end of that arm right so right, right why not use it to scoop some dirt <laughs> yeah. it's not like it's a fork or something you know it's like it's a shovel so dennis do you know if they're planning on putting the support structure back on top of the hole once the once the mole is is down in there i don't know i haven't heard any talk of that one way or the other but i mean I haven't been following. I mean, I'm assuming that's a pretty closely. difficult operation because you're going to have to lower it while the mole is hammering to take up the slack. Right. My guess, my guess would be 
that they would not attempt something like that. Just because uh, with the the tethers, you know, I'm thinking of how you you could really even do that. You know, when the tethers were wound and the mole leaving the support structure, that would, you know, be safe and controlled. But now that the tethers are kind of good part of it is out and about, I don't think you could. Yeah. What would be the point in doing that anyway? Because I thought the housing was just to deploy it, but once it's deployed, I mean... That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, it is for stability, but that's only when the mole is, you know, still above the surface. Well, and, you know, having that tether laying across the surface isn't ideal either. So, I mean, there there might be some amount of benefit to it, but I... I yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that wasn't something that they were going to do. Yeah, I just don't I don't think they physically could do it now that the tethers kind of flapping about. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like I mean, if if you could pick up the structure and move it as it's drilling down so that way, you know, the yeah. tether is kind of, you know, semi-taut yeah. or whatever, uh, but mm-hmm. that's not realistic. Yeah, that that'd be that I mean, you'd have to do that to take up the slack as you lowered it on lowered the structure down on top and that yeah, pretty unlikely. Yeah. Cool. Keeping my fingers crossed for it. So you have in the notes here some interesting figures because, um, you know, we've talked a bit about how effective this thing is because it seems kind of unbelievable that you could have something with no external moving parts that can actually bury itself down into the Martian surface. And so back in January, it had actually gotten down to 1.5 centimeters, and that was just with 20 strokes. So just, you know, like 20 repetitions. That doesn't sound like a lot, but still, that actually is very impressive, at least to me, that it can move over a centimeter just by whatever internal mechanism it has to get, you know, that kind of like gets it down there. But it's just using momentum, and it can bury itself just by doing that with just 20 strokes, and it can get 1.5 centimeters. That's actually pretty impressive. But then the remaining 110 strokes had actually sent it backwards 3.5 centimeters. So it uh, had the opposite Mm -hmm. effect. So this is the second time it did this backing out movement and the idea is that while it was pinned it was going through previously broken dura crust and so that's mm. what sent it in that one and a half centimeters mm. but then it reached dura crust that it hadn't encountered before or that maybe it did but actually kind of had just compressed downward to make it even harder and didn't break through and so that then caused the first big rebound off of that fresh dura crust which then loosened the pinning from the arm, which then sent it back the remaining 3.5 centimeters as it kept doing its stroking because mm-hmm. it needs that friction to keep it from just kind of bouncing back and forth in place, essentially. So now they're going to just push it. <laughs> they're, they're in position, too. It's cool. Like you can uh, – uh, the Insight Image Bot, I think it's called, mm-hmm. on Twitter. Mm-hmm. It's just – it's just a, yeah, it, it's wonderful. It just shows you the instruments or the, the context cameras from Insight and it just – constantly swinging them out so you can see they've now picked it up and placed it uh right above the back cap and they're pretty comfortable confident they can push down and uh forget even friction they're just kind of now <laughs> i mean it, it's kind of funny to think about right all this remarkably clever and skilled engineering and they're like okay well we're just gonna push the thing now essentially it like really makes you wish they had just, you know, a couple of crude robotic arms just to bump mm-hmm. things around. Like nothing fancy, but it would help if they could just kind of like prop it up a little bit and then press it down with the other arm. They have mm-hmm. a scoop at the end of it. And obviously there's no reason to have robotic arms with like if you don't actually need them. But, you know, just some just mm-hmm. some kind of crude manipulators that are, I don't know, kind of like a backup or something. I, don't know. I mean, right. it, it just seems that like when you're dealing with something that can't move otherwise, that might be useful. But obviously that's yeah. probably not realistic. Well, think about 
about where they'd be if they didn't have this arm, you know? Yeah. Well, then they'd just really be... be in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. That would be that would be a cool little thing. Like, you kind of just, yeah, some kind of standardized, cheap, relatively, or like, you know, make it as cheap as possible. Just kind of, yeah, just have, mm-hmm. you know, just like, you know, you want your spacecraft to have uh, a, a power source, your spacecraft to have thermal control, your spacecraft to have its little arm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, th- I mean, the arm does have uh, an end effector. It just isn't good for grabbing cylindrical objects. Right. <sighs> good luck to HP Cube's crew. And uh, also keep in mind that size is doing great science during all of this. So NASA Insight mm-hmm. is, <laughs> is cooking. <laughs> True. Three short and sweets. And what is our first one, Dennis? First up, JAXA is going forward with sample return mission to Phobos. JAXA has officially approved the Martian Moon Exploration, or MMX, mission after analyzing the probe's scientific goals, success criteria, implementation, financial plans, schedule, and risks. Aiming for a 2024 launch aboard an H-3 rocket, the mission will include a NASA Discovery Program-funded neutron and gamma-ray spectrometer called Megane, as well as a small rover similar to Hayabusa 2's mascot robot. The spacecraft will land on Phobos in 2025, collect at least 10 grams of material, and will complete the first round-trip mission to Mars by returning to Earth in 2029. So cool. That is very yes. cool. I love Japanese visiting worlds and dropping rovers on them. But this one's <laughs> going to land, so unlike Hayabusa 2, it's going to actually touch down on there and stay. So that's pretty exciting. Next up, SpaceX has a date for a polar launch from the Cape. SpaceX is scheduled to deliver a Salcom B satellite into a polar orbit from Cape Canaveral on March 30th aboard a Falcon 9, making it the first polar launch from the Cape in nearly 60 years. To do this, the Falcon 9 will have to perform a dogleg maneuver to avoid flying over land. Its first stage will then return to the launch site. Such a launch and return landing requires more Delta V than it otherwise would. Luckily, Salcom B is a fairly light payload. This capability for East Coast launches may now throw into question whether Vandenberg Air Force Base is needed at all for rocket launches to orbit which actually really surprises me because I thought that Vandenberg did something else, but I guess just well, it allows you to launch heavier payloads to orbit. That's, Ex- uh, that's okay. what I was going to say, right? I mean, that line right before it. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, that's what You're... I got from the article, but that's a good yeah. point. So Yeah, Tesla Roddy is saying that they're questioning it, and I, I'm not questioning it. I don't, I don't think no. that's okay. <laughs> right. And variety is always good anyway. And finally, CSLI selects the next round of 18 small sats to fly in Alana missions. So NASA's CubeSat launch initiative issued a call for proposals last August and has now selected a large handful to go to space on educational launch of nanosatellite missions, which could see them deployed from upper stages of secondary payloads or from the ISS. Our particular favorite is Bama-1 from the University of Alabama. Delta V in the chat helped write the proposal. It will demonstrate a drag sail for rapid deorbiting. Other selected missions demonstrate a laser crosslink, radio tags for easier tracking, GNC avionics, an X-band downlink, and even a radio interferometer for spotting radio burst emissions from the sun. Questions, comments, and correction burns. We got some information from a listener who has some good resources on how to and how not to verify software for your spacecraft. <laughs> yeah. So so this is uh, Andrew Z writing in via email again. Thank you, Andrew, for all of your links and comments. We really appreciate it. Um, but mm-hmm. he linked us to an Aviation Week article titled Starliner Gives Boeing a Hard Lesson in How Not to Verify Software. And, and the really cool, th- I mean, it's, it's a good article. 
Um, but the really cool thing is that they uh, included a link to a PDF of a report put out by NASA titled The Legacy of Space Shuttle Flight Hardware, um, where they talk about what they had to do to verify PASS, the shuttle primary avionics software system. Um, and so, you know, the idea is as we're going from an era where we're mostly flying hardware that has a little bit of software installed. Now we're mostly flying software that has oftentimes off-the-shelf hardware wrapped around it, right? We're building hardware to serve a software instead of the other way around. And so I thought this was a really interesting uh, look into the way that uh, Shuttle learned these lessons or, or how NASA's shuttle team learned these lessons. And I, I don't want to talk about it too much because I haven't uh, read the entire uh, NASA report, but I wanted to include a link because I think it's really interesting. So we have back with us Laura Forsick. Uh, welcome back to the show. You have a new book out, which is awesome. But uh, for anyone who doesn't know who you are, I guess just go ahead and give a very brief introduction and then we'll move on to your book. Sure. Thanks for having me on again. So I'm Laura and I own my own consulting company, Astrolytical, which focuses on analyzing the space industry and space policy. My background is in space sciences, astrophysics and planetary science. And I am a first time author. Yay. And so your new book is Rise of the Space Age Millennium. Millennials, which almost sounds like a fictional dystopian sci-fi book, but it's actually a good thing, right? It's a, it's a very positive book. I didn't set out one way or the other to make it uh, what I wanted it to be initially. It was just uh, let me get data and see what I come up with because I interviewed over 100 people for this book. And it ended up being a very positive outlook. And it's not a dystopian fiction story. It's actually a, a nonfiction look at what millennials, how they work in space, how they want to work in space, and what they hope to do in space. So I, I am a huge fan of data-driven works. I mean, you know, it, it's not data-driven writing is not limited to scientific papers. Um, so I, I really like the fact that you didn't have an expectation when you started doing this. I think that's a really great way to write a book. Yeah, I'm a scientist. So I did approach <laughs> it initially as as a scientist would, right? Like I'm just one data point, me being an older millennial who works in the space sector. And I, I figured 100 seems like a good number. So that's what I aimed for. I got a little over 100 interviewees of millennials who were either working in the space sector or studying in school to work in the space sector. And I did have some initial preconceptions and it ended up being that there's such a wide variety of opinions that a lot mm. of people um, blew away some of those expectations for me you know some some people agreed with me and some people didn't and that just goes to show that you know even as millennials we're not a homogenous group we're, mm. we're not you know completely unified in how we think and what we say mm. what a shock so so you uh you mentioned um i think in one of uh one of the documents in your press kit that you actually had a first draft that was just chock full of data and then you ended up doing a pretty heavy rewrite and going more story oriented is that right right so as a scientist i'm so used to scientific writing and scientific writing is all about the data and the you know the graphs and and i i realized as i was going through that initial draft i'm like this isn't very good storytelling like books that are meant to be read by a general audience or at least a, a subsection of the audience this isn't really a general audience book um they need to be fun they need to really capture people 
and people's stories are what capture attention. And so it's a new type of writing for me. I've never written a, a general book before. Um, you know, I've done blogging and article writing, and that's not quite the same. So mm -hmm. I really wanted to get to the stories of what people, you know, their motivations and their backgrounds and their goals and dreams. And, and, and that's the kind of stuff that people are really interested in. And I found myself really drawn to those kinds of stories rather than here's the percentage of millennials working in NASA, which is, you know, some of the initial stuff that I had in that first draft. <laughs> um, could you could you talk a little bit more about what that what that first draft looked like? Because that's kind of something that nobody's going to get to see. So I'd love to hear more about it. That's true. Yeah, it's completely deleted from my hard drive. So, you know, oh, really? Um, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the, you know, the, the physical crinking up of paper and throwing it in the trash bin. That's just deleting it off your hard drive now. <laughs> so, yeah, I had demographics of how many millennials work in SpaceX versus NASA versus some of the larger space companies and um, how those demographics changed over time and a look at a lot more of like the general um, U.S. I stuck to the United States for the most part because that's just easier data to get to U.S. Uh, demographics of the workforce. And I kept some of that in the introduction mm. of the book, but most of it, most of it just ended up being storytelling. So I didn't mm. want this to be like, I didn't want this to be more of a scientific book of millennials and, and how they work. You know, this percentage says that they really like working in this way. And this percentage says they really like working in that way. And that was how I initially envisioned the book. Mm -hmm. uh, but <laughs> that's just not interesting reading. And so I really wanted to make it so that the stories were the highlight. You know, it's it's not the numbers that I wanted to be the highlight of the book. I wanted the individual stories to be the highlight of the book. So I really focused then on what people told me and, and where they were coming from, and especially their hopes and dreams of the future, because I thought that was some of the more important parts that people didn't really um, hear for the most part. You know, a lot of people who have millennial colleagues, they they might know the, the here and now, but they don't necessarily know where millennials want to go or think that we should go in the future. So that's really what I wanted to focus on. So so where did you get the, uh, well, how did you collect that, the big kind of demographic kind of data? And then how did you... Um, solicit interviews. I mean, we've maybe done 40 or 50 interviews on this show. I can't imagine doing, you know, a hundred interviews for a single project. Like how did you collect that initial big data? And then how did you collect your big data that's from small perspectives? Sure. Yeah. So it started out with me talking to people I knew, uh, as you know, most things are, right? And here being in the United States, like that's where I tended to focus. I wish that I had gotten more of a global perspective. I did have some interviewees from outside the United States, but for the most part, they were in various states across the states. And I, I you know, targeted people I already knew. And then I also, for each person I interviewed, asked them for recommendations. And that way I was able to branch out and get to people I didn't know. Um, and that was a particularly important for one of my chapters that focused on social media, because I did a lot of work through social media, especially through LinkedIn, trying to identify who who did I know who were millennials and just trying to figure that out by when they graduated. But a lot of people aren't on social media. And so I wanted to get some of those people involved as well. So um, the, the word of mouth spreading and the recommendations really helped spread the word and get me, get me past 100 interviews. And it was quite an undertaking. It took me several months uh, to get you know to where I wanted 
want it to be. And I had a lot of no's, <laughs> you know, not everybody I asked <laughs> said yes. I had a lot of really great people that I really wanted to talk to, but they were declined. Um, mm. Even though that some people decided that they wanted to remain anonymous and that was just fine with me. I made up some fake names, um, but, you know, even with anonymity, some people just didn't feel comfortable and that was fine. Um, so I, I got people who did feel comfortable responding, whether with their own name or a fake name. And um, <laughs> it just, it was a lot of going through their answers and not everybody answered every question and that was fine too. I just managed to make sure that I got their answers in the ways that they wanted to present themselves in a, in a very fair representation of their voice. Yeah. So you, you had a questionnaire that you applied to everybody. Right, right. And it was the same questionnaire that I sent to everybody, but I, I also gave them a lot of options within that questionnaire. I, I made it some of the questions sort of vague so that it was open to interpretation. I also had a lot of choices within the questions and I also allowed them to skip questions that they just didn't feel comfortable with. Um, so it really worked out that I got a lot of variety in my responses. Um, what what did it take to develop that questionnaire? Uh, see, this is where I, I sort of went beyond my training because I am a physical scientist, not a space, uh, not a social scientist. And so I'm not trained in how to write a proper questionnaire. And so mm -hmm. it was really just making up questions that I thought were interesting that I wanted to answer. And I ended up throughout the course of writing the book, kind of changing the emphasis of some of the questions based on the response that I had gotten. Um, you know, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but some of the questions initially I had wanted to emphasize one thing, but the responses I was getting back made me realize I need to emphasize something else. And so it was, uh, I didn't change the questionnaire at all. I didn't change the questions from person to person, but I did change um, how I presented their answers based on what they told me. That's, that's always the most interesting thing, right? It's the question that you don't know you need to ask ahead of time. Yeah, exactly. Because people are unpredictable and some people took it in completely completely different direction than how I even imagined that they could take it, which I found to be really interesting because that opened up the perspectives. Um, you know, for example, there was one topic of, um, you know, where where do you see us going in the future? And some people took that to be very personal. Where do you think you are going in the future? Whereas some people took that to be much more broad. Where is humanity going in the future? Um, same with like, uh, you know, are you comfortable working a mission that lasts longer than your lifetime? Some people took that literally to be them. Are you personally comfortable and some people took that to be a broader perspective is it best to have a long-term mission that you know either you know, keeps people's attention or morale or you know there's all kinds of things that i went into but i love the variety of the answers that i got i'm guessing that you didn't do any interviews with older people but i'm kind of curious as to what you think some of the differences might be between millennials and you know the, the older generation I'm glad you asked. That was a whole chapter in my book. Oh. <laughs> so I asked millennials what they think were the differences between themselves, their peers, and their older colleagues. And again, a variety of answers. Some of them um, spoke about the uh, experience and the knowledge that was being passed down, um, the quality of the work that older generations do. And some people talked about a lot of the differences that they saw um, having to do with uh, technology use and comfort around technology, um, inclusivity and biases around gender or, or any other minority uh, issue. Uh, some of the other things, <laughs> I don't know, it's a bit of a controversial chapter. How about, how about I, I leave it as a teaser <laughs> so you can 
could read the book and find out um, <laughs> okay. all the different ways that people thought that the generations might differ. And then there were a subset of people who did not think that the generations differed at all, that, um, you know, gener we're generally the same and maybe stage of life is what really matters. So you know, someone who's straight out of school has a different stage of life priority set than someone mm -hmm. who's near retirement age. Within the interviewees, though, I do want to emphasize that I did cover a lot of ground. So I interviewed everyone who was above the age of 18. And in the millennial range, I defined it as born between 1981 and 2000. So it's it's quite a, a, a range. Um, and I had a few CEOs in there. So it was older millennials, younger millennials, and everyone in between, you know, people straight in their first jobs, people who are kind of already mid-level managers. Um, so it was quite a lot of variety in there of who I managed to talk to and what their perspectives might be as an undergraduate student versus a CEO. It's interesting. One of my one of the questions I had written down ahead of time was, you know, what makes a millennial and what what sets them apart? And your answer is kind of buckshot. It's you know, it's it's all yeah. over the place. And there's, but do you, do you think that there are any any unifying themes that that you think you saw um, oh, as far as yes. you know what what millennials agree on? One of the main topics in, in this covered in one of the chapters is the connectivity of millennials. We grew up in an age where the internet was ubiquitous um, for the most part. You know, not not the older millennials maybe didn't have the internet when they were very young, but at some point in their childhood they got access to the internet. And the older or the younger millennials they always had the internet, and they were even born when um, smartphones were coming about. So millennials really helped form the way that we are connected now with the technology that we use every day. And that constant connectivity also leads itself to multitasking, which is another co topic mm. I covered in a different chapter. Um, and so multitasking was very varied. <laughs> it was dependent on who you talk to, how they how they multitask. And same with connectivity. Um, everybody was very comfortable using technology, but whether they preferred to um, be connected all the time just depended. And I think if people were to interview the next generation, which is right now called Generation Z, there'd be even more of an emphasis on connectivity, uh, being connected all the time, and, and what ways people multitask as they're connected to the entire world at all times in their lives. Another theme that popped out, um, the themes of inclusivity um, and just making sure, especially as we go forward in the, the new the new missions that we have going into space, especially human spaceflight, that we make sure that we have a more representative demographic of the entire population of the world, rather than it being American centric, rather than it being, you know, white male only, um, because that was what the Apollo missions were. They were a fantastic achievement of, of humanity, but they were also a very, very tiny subset of humanity who got to experience that achievement. And so one of the emphases that I saw over and over again with the people I interviewed was making sure that we are really welcoming in the space community of all kinds of people, um, all kinds of minorities, all kinds of uh, gender representations, all kinds of um, not just the United States of America, but all kinds of international partners. International partners was another chapter of the book where millennials feel very connected internationally or very open to being connected to international partners. And that ended up being a, quite a theme of how space can unify the planet in a, in a bit of a idealistic sense. Some people had it very idealistic sense of being able to unify the entire planet as we go out into space. Um, some people kept it more like how it is now with we just have international partners that we go together with. But um, the majority of millennials that I interviewed wanted to go on to Mars, thought that we as millennials would go step foot on Mars within our lifetimes. And then we realized 
most of the millennials that I interviewed realized that America can't do that alone. It needs to be an international partnership of many nations that come together and achieve that great, uh, that great goal that we've had for decades. Nice. I was going to ask, <laughs> were the interviewees more bullish on the moon versus Mars? But it sounds like <laughs> we're uh, more Mars. Uh, uh, we got our eyes more towards Mars. No, it was mixed. I don't want to mislead you. So some of the interviewees, um, they did approve of, they did uh, advocate for a lunar mission, a lunar return mission, um, but always with Mars as the uh, ultimate goal. And and some people just believe that we should go straight to Mars. And so um Overall, the consensus, not not the complete unified consensus, but at least everybody, for the most part, thought that Mars was the ultimate goal, that we would eventually get to Mars. It'd be pretty suspicious if you had any single answer that uh, that was unanimous. Uh, so this, this is kind of a weird question that I think is intentionally outside the scope of your book. But what do you think is expected of millennials? Like how, like... What do, uh, well, I guess, mostly older generations, because younger generations aren't really in the workforce so much, but, uh, but what do you see as being placed on millennials from the outside in? And do you think that that correlates well to how we see ourselves and how we see what the expectations upon us are? That is an interesting question, because I did not interview anybody older than the millennial demographic. So just based on yeah, the sorry. feedback that I've gotten, no, no, it's, it's a good, it's, it's a good way for me to think about, um, you know, how this book might be perceived, let alone how millennials in the workforce may be perceived. And um, I, I did do some initial feedback gathering as I was writing this book um, from older generations who at one point I completely hated my book. <laughs> and I'm pretty <laughs> discouraged there. I got a lot of negative feedback. Um, and that's just because I think that um, it's really hard for people to understand points of view outside of their own worldview. Um, and so a lot of the older generations, they just aren't used to thinking about millennials in a certain way hmm. or thinking about themselves in a certain way that millennials might be pointing out. And so in using that same frame of mind, how do older generations see or expect things of millennials? Um, it, it's, I think that um, there's a lot of experience that older generations, um, they know that they have and they know that they can pass down. And, and I think that it's expected that millennials go to those older generational uh, you know, experiences and knowledge and be able to soak up that knowledge before it's gone, before it leaves the workforce. And so you don't have people reinventing the wheel or reinventing things that we've, we already see it, right? We already see it with, uh, you know, the Apollo generation retired or, or deceased and, and having to reinvent a lot of these things that we had learned mm -hmm. 50 years ago. Um, and, and it's just that lost knowledge. So gathering that knowledge before it is lost, making sure that we not only gather it, but also internalize it, you know, put it to, to good use. There was also some ideas of maybe paying your dues, you know, making sure that you are aware of the fact that, you know, it takes time to rise in the workforce um, and to not be so dismissive of that method of how you climb the ladder. Um, because that's one of the criticisms that millennials in general get is that we're impatient in our career progress, our career advancement. It's funny because I, I truly think that that's a resounding theme of humanity. Every, uh, Every generation wants to get to the top. You know, they, they want to be where their parents are as soon as they leave the house and they want to get to the top. And then once they do get to the top, they look down on the next generation and say, oh, you got to you got to be patient. I was patient forgetting that they 
very mm-hmm. much weren't. Yeah, and, and a lot of these topics aren't necessarily generational. They're simply right. age. You know, someone who's ambitious in their early 20s just out of school wants to get to that high up position where they have influence so they can begin to change the world in the way that they see that they want to. And that's completely independent of generation, I think, and more to do with the fact that just the, the ambitions of youth. Yeah, you, you mentioned that earlier. Um, what'd you call it? Phase of life issues. I think that's really yes. insightful. Yeah, I covered that a little bit throughout the book. Um, you know, someone who, for example, has a family might be more interested in providing for that family, having a stable paycheck, um, making sure that they've got work-life balance rather than someone who is just out of school with no um, no responsibilities that might tie them down other than student loan debt, um, you know, versus someone who's near retirement age with grown children out of the house. You know, there's different perspectives based on where you are in life. And, and I think that's completely independent of generation. Um, but at the same time, um, you do see generational shifts. You do see more of a, a ability to accept things like um, working from home or flexible work schedules, especially so that you can be more inclusive of women in the workforce, for yeah. example. Yeah, sorry, I wanted to get back to, to the question. I didn't fully answer. Um, which is another thing that millennials and, and how the older generations might differ is that the older generations, for the most part, they they lived during the Apollo era where that was their grand achievement was getting humanity to the moon. And that was something that um, you could remember from last year, all the celebrations of the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing and how much that meant to people and, and all the oral histories that were collected and all the stories and, and books and articles that were written about what a great achievement that was but millennials were not born then so millennials don't have that memory um so you'll find a big generational shift um being that older generations they want that kind of millennial that they want that apollo mindset of um government focused government driven human space exploration or space exploration in general um the big government programs big government hardware um government controls um and and maybe international but not necessarily international especially if you're in the united states it's very u.s focused u.s leadership focused and national pride that is a big one national pride you'll still hear that talked about with our politicians and our leadership within nasa where it's a america first american leadership you'll hear these keywords over and over and over those do not ring what true with millennials those those are not at all how millennials see the world millennials see the world more in terms of international partnerships and and unity and um you know grand achievements for humanity in general rather than a grand achievement for america um and and it's not necessarily an apollo uh, redo. It's more of um, how do we move forward in humanity in a sustainable, permanent way. And even though I actually did most of those interviews before um, the Artemis program was established, it was mm-hmm. a lot of the Artemis program thinking of we go to the moon and we go sustainably and permanently and we go on, on to Mars. Um, that kind of thinking is really important and it almost has nothing to do with national pride. Um, the very few interviewees who mentioned national pride, like I think only one or two of them mentioned that that was a motivator for them. The other ones mentioned that, that was more of a motivator for previous generations. And the majority of people <laughs> didn't mention it at all. Um, most of them talked about 
about how international partnerships and coming together as a planet was much more important to them. So that was a huge generational divide right there of how we even talk about space exploration being a, a national pride versus some other justification for why we go to space. Yeah, I think I think that's an interesting perspective because while national pride was a big motivator for getting the budget to NASA, um, if you listen to interviews, you know, mostly like through the Apollo or the uh, the oral history project from NASA, like a lot of these folks talk about how it's us as humanity went to the moon. And especially when you listen to like the uh, the astronaut, the Apollo astronauts talking about their post moon tours around the world, like they really had a. Uh, a global perspective and they really appreciated the the global achievement and kind of reveled in it a little bit and it's funny that then we turn around and it's you know the it's the administrators and the and the politicians that are are very nationalistic even though that wasn't necessarily what the what the boots on the ground were we're thinking so yeah you bring up a good point where astronauts have a different perspective because they've seen the planet as yeah. one 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 planet, one world, and, right. and there's that overview effect. And I only mention it briefly in the book, um, but some people, some of the people I interviewed did mention how they think that it's important for space to be more accessible and more inclusive and more frequent and, and space tourism more uh, available to the masses because that brings a different perspective to humanity where we are more global uh, outlook. If you, have, if you see the world from above, you automatically see the world in a different way than if you're down on the ground you see all the fractions where if you're up in space, yeah. you don't necessarily see those borders. And um, a lot of people I interviewed mentioned how they believe that space tourism is something that either they want to do personally or is something that they think is really important for bringing humanity to space as a, a whole and, and not necessarily the very few astronauts who've gone before us. Well, it, it kind of almost sounds like the overview effect uh, has trickled down to some extent. I, I hope so. I personally hope so. I mean, I, I, w I want to experience it myself up there, but if oh, I yeah. never get to, um, then I hope that in some small way that I've been inspired by it and can spread that inspiration. So do you think that that's also just because uh, like millennials don't see organizations such as NASA as being the key to space exploration because maybe now they're looking a little bit more private and so they kind of have this mentality where it's you know just about these various companies and that there is something about companies such as SpaceX which don't seem as like national like I guess like nationalistic you know like they're just like companies and so they are kind of detached from their country of origin. Yeah you're exactly right in fact the very first chapter of the book is the longest chapter and it speaks to the inspirations of millennials like how they got into space why what makes them excited about space, what inspires them. And a lot of people were inspired by NASA, but a lot more people I interviewed were inspired by the, the quote-unquote new space, the emerging space companies of the past two decades. And top of that, SpaceX. But like everybody who mentioned new space pretty much mentioned SpaceX. And of course, Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic and some of the other companies were also mentioned. But SpaceX was top. And a lot of the people who mentioned the fact that they were inspired by these new emerging space companies mentioned that um, it increased accessibility and it, it opened it up for more people to get involved. And it's not just people in terms of countries and nations. It's also people in terms of backgrounds. Um, so, you know, not just the aerospace and engineers, but really a wide variety of people being able to get involved in space companies. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily very different from how it used to be, but I think it's much more accessible and visible now, where you do have the general public being much more aware of space because of these private companies than 
you know, they might not be so much aware of what NASA is doing right now. Um, and, and so it's just a big inspiration for the people who grew up with SpaceX doing these incredible feats of reusable rocketry to, to see that happening right in front of that, to know that that is, you know, breaking cutting edge technology that's happening right in front of them. That was a major inspiration for a lot of millennials that I interviewed. Um, so I'd like to know if you have any suggestions for your fellow millennials. Like after collecting all this data, if you could, you know, beam uh, a single uh, idea or direction to this rising generation, what what do you think that would be? One of the reasons I wrote the book was to give millennials especially millennials who work in space or want to work in space, um, a means of connecting to other people so that they know they're not alone. I think a lot of times, especially for people not yet in the industry, um, people feel like it's not for them or they're not allowed to be in it because they're not good at math or they're not in a certain country or whatever the case may be. Um, and so for those people who feel more like outsiders, I wanted the voices, some of these voices in the book to really speak to them, to let them know that, hey, you can be in the check Republic and still work in space, or you can be a communicator and still work in space. You know, there's just so many different ways to get involved. Um, now, for the people who are already in space in some way, um, you know, it, this this book also hopefully will speak to them because I, I feel like a lot more of the people I interviewed were already involved in some way or another, whether it was through their universities or through um, clubs and organizations or through, you know, whatever their work happened to be. Some people were working for NASA and some people were working for companies. I didn't call out um, employers in the book, mm -hmm. but you can mm -hmm. kind of tell <laughs> based on location <laughs> of, or what they said, who they're working for. Um, but yeah, I wanted them to know that there's just so many exciting things going on and, and they already know it, but some people get kind of stuck in their own little bubbles and they don't really realize the amount of things going on. And it's not like this is a comprehensive look at, you know, the space industry, the space sector. Um, but it is hopefully a way for people to realize just the variety of things that people are doing. Because I, I did try to cover a lot of ground in terms of the type of work people did or the type of perspectives that people have. Um, so I, I hope that this gives them another way of seeing both themselves reflected in other people, as well as new things that are happening that they might not know about. Keeping in mind that the interviews are about three and a half years old now. <laughs> so, you know, even more has happened in the past three and a half years than I can capture in this book. Mm -hmm. Um, and then real quick, I wanted to mention that it's actually an illustrated book, right? You have like chapter header illustrations. Yeah. So I, I had um, three artists that I employed for this book and for the internal art, the art that starts out every chapter, I actually hired, I don't know if you're familiar with the Brooke Owens Fellowship Organization, but there is a Brookie who is, um, gosh, I should know this. I think she's an engineer. <laughs> Sorry if I don't know. Um, but she's also an artist. And I, and I, um, I guess that's actually really important to, to note is that people People can have multiple talents and, and multiple things that they do. So you can be an engineer and an artist. And so I actually hired her um, to do some illustrations from within the book. And, and I, I love them. I, I hope that other people love them as well. And, and that was something that I really, from the start, from writing this book, I wanted to merge space and art together because that is something that's important to me. I'm a big fan of art. I don't have a lot of money <laughs> to spend on art, but um, the, the little bit that I can do, which is the internal and external art of the book, um, I wanted to make sure that I promoted it. And I'm already thinking about my next book and how I'm going to promote art within that book. I, I just feel like it's a really important thing to realize that there are so many aspects of humanity. Um, you can be an artist and work in space, whether you're an engineer or not. 
Can you give us a little teaser of what you might be thinking about for your next book? Sure. Yeah, actually, I, you don't need me to tell you a teaser. I actually wrote about it on Twitter throughout the past <laughs> year or so. <laughs> I oh, haven't started it because I, I haven't allowed myself to start it until I completely am finished with this book. And I'm not sure. actually completely finished with Rise of the Space Age Millennials because I'm still working on an audiobook. So as soon as I'm done with the audiobook and that's released later this year, then I'm going to allow myself to start on this book about space tourism. And I'm going to be interviewing several astronauts who have flown especially more recently um, and, and a mix of astronauts you know not just NASA but also some commercial astronauts if I if they agree to it <laughs> I haven't actually <laughs> gotten anyone I haven't asked anyone yet I haven't allowed myself sure. to I've just been sure. bouncing the idea off of some astronauts I know um, but I wanted to get their perspectives on um, some of the things that isn't really talked about um some things that might have surprised them or, or some things that uh, you, you get you get an idea of how space is based on a lot of the questions that astronauts get you know how to use the bathroom in space you know that kind of stuff yeah. um but what are some of those hidden things that aren't really talked about and i wanted to get those perspectives from people who have actually flown so to pass that knowledge to the generation of people, hopefully including myself someday, who will fly in space as a space tourist. And of course, most of them are going to be short-term flyers. So a lot of the longer-term things won't apply to them immediately. But in the future, we do hope to have some more longer-term, whether it's on the International Space Station or a future space station or a moon base or a, bar- a Mars base or, you know, mm-hmm. um, I'm hoping to get different perspectives on life in space um, from people who aren't necessarily going to be government ch- government trained astronauts. Um, and I, I feel like that is something that's not talked about very much. There's a lot of books on space tourism, especially the history of space tourism, but not a ton of books on how to prepare to become one. And I'm not necessarily talking about analog training. I'm talking more like how do you physically and mentally, emotionally prepare mm. yourself to be an astronaut so that um, once you get up there, you can really have the maximum amount of enjoyment that you possibly can. I love that. My favorite thing, whenever we do interviews with people who are like, you know, Know, mission managers or you know people that actually work in the industry itself is the behind the scenes kind of like personal stories about how they handled this particular hypergall or how they you know what it actually is like to sit behind a computer during an actual mission you know during a launch or something like that and so these things that don't seem to be written down anywhere else getting that mm-hmm. kind of human perspective from astronauts and you know others is that just sounds amazing to me exactly some of the more unwritten things and and some people have started to get into this a little bit with um, discussing alcohol in space or sex in space or um, some of the more psychological, you know, butting heads in space or feeling lonely (laughs) in space, you know. So um, I don't know yet what the astronauts are going to respond to say what it is that surprised them the most. So I don't want to pre-guess it. But I, I really want to dive into those aspects to, to figure out, okay, what causes that and what can you do to prepare for that? Um, and I think it'll be really interesting because I don't know what those questions are going to reveal. So I don't know ahead of time what to dive into. I'm, I'm just as curious as you to find out what the behind the scenes is. Yeah, so cool. Uh, okay. So I was going to ask you about a, uh, about the potential of an audiobook, but I guess you're already working on that. Are you reading it yourself? I am reading it myself. My husband tells me I have a great voice, you know, whether or not he's lying to me, I don't know, but <laughs> I'm writing it myself. <laughs> Exciting. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll look forward to that later this year as well. I did want to point out that this book is, 
um, written for anybody who works or is interested in the space sector. So it's not necessarily only written for millennials in space. You know, I feel like that's my primary audience, but my secondary audience absolutely are other generations who work in space or are interested in space. You know, I think that older generations could learn a lot from this perspective, especially ones that have a more of an open mind. And in fact, pretty much all the feedback I've gotten so far has been from older, uh, oh, sorry, older generations who have read this book and learned something new or had a different perspective and surprised them. Hmm. Um, so that's also something that I found was really important to emphasize is that this isn't just for millennials. It's it can be for anybody. Now I wouldn't recommend it for your local book club, uh, so it's not necessarily <laughs> for a wide audience. Um, you know, I sent a copy to my parents, but I don't know if this is necessarily something for everybody. Um, but I think anybody who's interested in space could read this book and find it interesting. All right. Well, great. It's been uh, fantastic talking to you so far. We have our two traditional final questions. Um, the penultimate question being, where would you like to be found on the internet? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on again. So if you're interested in a copy of Space Age Millennials, so um, it's available on Amazon paperback and ebook, as well as Barnes and Noble ebook, and on my website, uh, which is astrolytical.com. And you can find a link there for Rise of the Space Age Millennials. And that will get you an autographed copy. So you can get your own copy. And if anything in there interests you, you can also go on Twitter and the hashtag is um, hashtag Space Millennials. And I've been um, posting on that hashtag for several months now, as well as forwarding other people's things that they posted about the book on that hashtag as well. Um, so myself, you can find me on Twitter at Lara Forsick. Um, and also my company is Astrolytical. And I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, so just connect with me anywhere. So Laura, I think we have a good idea of what one object you would want to bring with you into space. But if you could visit one location in our solar system, where would you go? Oh, that's so tough. I mean, I'm always <laughs> a moon girl. Um, so I have to go with that. I, I absolutely would love to return back to the site of the Apollo 11 landing. I don't know if you're familiar with um, an organization called For All Moonkind. I think I'm getting that right. Um, that they're actually trying to preserve the landing sites, the historical yes. sites on the moon um, within the United Nations. And I, I, if my dream job would be to be an actual like astronaut, like uh, historical kind of preserver. I mean, my background's in science, so I'd, I'd be some kind of you know planetary scientist up there. But I would love to somehow work on how to preserve the footprints and preserve, um, you know, some of the later missions have rovers and cool stuff like that. Um, the, the flags and the photographs, you know, working to preserve those sites. And so starting out with just seeing them with my own eyes, I think would be pretty amazing. I think that would really put us in touch with that amazing point 50 years ago that it's really changed the course of humanity. I also want to go to some of those really neat sites, of, you know, different moons of Jupiter and Saturn that might have life because um, I didn't talk about it, but in the book, I did interview some space scientists who, um, you know, are searching for life on exoplanets. And I think that's just awesome. And I personally <laughs> want to go, even if it's just bacteria, you know, and you know, there's planetary protection considerations, but I would still love to see that with my own eyes. Okay. Sure, sure. Okay, okay. So, so wait, we got to go back to the moon because I, I really love the idea of being a, a docent of a, of a moon <laughs> museum. But, but you're saying you would rather do like con conservation and be a conservator than a than a tour guide uh you have to start with the first before you can do the second right okay, so on. i will go up there and preserve it for you guys and then okay. you can be the docent 
There we go. Okay, you got a deal. Deal. All right, done and done. All right, thank you so much, Laura, for your time. And uh, I hope everybody listening will go buy your book. Thank you so much for having me on. So this week in spaceflight history, it was a good clue because we have just one winner. Uh, one guess who that is. The perennial favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so our winner this week is Chubby. Good, good job, Chubby. Uh, so the clue from last week was white hot stick. And this week in spaceflight history is February 29th, 1936. It was the birth of Jack Lusma. Um, so Jack uh, got a, a bachelor's of science in aeronautical engineering from the University of Michigan. And then he immediately joined the Marines. And then he got a master's in aeronautical engineering from the U.S. Naval Postgrad School. Uh, and then the very next year, he was selected in NASA uh, Astronaut Group 5. Um, so it took him a while to actually uh, get off the ground, as it were. Um, but he served on the support crew for Apollo 9, 10, and 13. Um, do you guys know the difference between the support crew and the backup crew? Uh, besides, I, I mean, apart from the obvious, no. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> right. So, so each Apollo uh, mission basically got three groups of astronauts, the primary crew, the backup crew, and the support crew. And the support crew basically did all of the scheduling and uh, set the flight rules and basically were the the main supports, the, like the, the support leads for the mission. They were kind of the, the touchstones for, you know, how this mission was going to work. Then Lusma went on to serve as Capcom for a bunch of missions. In fact, uh, uh, Apollo 9, 10, and 13, you know, he was one of, the, one of the Capcoms. And so he was actually the Capcom at the desk during the Apollo 13 incident. So he's the one who was sitting there listening, you know, the primary contact to Apollo 13 when they made the uh, we've had a problem uh, call down to, down to Earth. Um, he was uh, possibly scheduled. I wasn't able to confirm this, but he was possibly scheduled uh, to have flown uh, as crew on Apollo 20, but of course, Apollo 20 was canceled. So the first time that he actually flew in space was Skylab 3. He was the pilot. Um, and uh, we've talked a lot about Skylab 2, but we haven't really talked about Skylab 3 too much. One of their RCS quads started leaking while they were doing their uh, final docking approach. Um, and so they you know, had to shut it down. Well, it's, it's fine to, to fly on three quads just as long as a uh, as, as long as a second one doesn't fail. Well, after docking, they had a second one fail and start leaking. So they went and shut that one down. And um, we never actually had uh, a, two Apollos in orbit at the same time, but this would have been the, the one and only time we ever did that. So they actually prepped um, the next uh, Apollo mission, so Skylab 4, uh, the next Apollo capsule to go up and dock to Skylab, which would would have been the only time we had two vehicles docked at Skylab at the same time, right? Um, but they determined that they were able to fly um, with just two RCS quads on the service module. Um, I'm assume, I, I looked to try to figure out which two quads failed. Um, if they, you know, if it was one and two failed and then three and four were, you know, on the same hemisphere, he hemicylinder, uh, if they're, if they're, if the two, cause if you have two failed and two good, um, either they could be next to each other, or they can be opposing. If they're opposing, mm -hmm. I would assume that there would be uh, very little question. They'd be able to operate uh, safely. So I, I'm suspecting that they might've been uh, adjacent to each other. Um, but either way, um, the command module has got its own 
uh, thrusters. And I'm assuming that they were able to balance the thrust using those additional thrusters. Um, but yeah, they, they ended up determining that it was okay to fly with just two quads. Um, so they, they never launched uh, a rescue mission, which would have been pretty darn cool. Um, so while they were at Skylab 3, they deployed, uh, you know, the super parasol. So on Apollo 2, they brought up two solutions to fix uh, or, or to make up for the failed uh, micrometeorite shield, right? They weren't so much worried about micrometeorite hits and more worried about the fact that the whole station was overheating without that shade. Um, so they deployed the parasol, which was like a small sunshade uh, that got deployed out of a little uh, science airlock. Um, they also brought up what was called the twin pole sunshade. And they or Skylab 2 brought it up and Skylab 3 ended up deploying it. Um, and they didn't take down the parasol. They just deployed the sunshade on top of it. Um, Skylab 3 was really cool um, because they were supposed to be up there for 30 days and the mission got extended to nearly 60 days. Um, I think uh, they landed after 59 days, something like that. Um, but, you know, each each Skylab mission set a record for being the longest space flight at the time. And that extension allowed Skylab 3 to, to join that party. Um, then later, um, Lusma flew on STS-3. Um, and this is where the clue comes from. We'll get to it in a sec. Uh, he was the commander uh, alongside uh, Fullerton, who was the, the other astronaut on that mission. STS-3 uh, saw the first use of the SRMS for actually manipulating payload. Um, they grabbed the plasma diagnostics package and basically held it off uh, to the side and let it do its thing. PDP, the plasma diagnostics package, was later reflown and actually got to fly in, in free flight for a little bit. But in this instance, it, it stayed uh, attached to the robotic arm. Um, this was also the mission where they weren't able to close the payload bay doors due to uneven heating that warped them. Um, and so they had to put the shuttle into a roll to allow the sun to heat up the, the entire exterior of the spacecraft evenly so that the warp would subside and they could uh, lock those those bays closed. STS-3 is also notable because it was the only uh, shuttle that landed at White Sands. So initially they were supposed to land um, at Edwards, um, but Edwards had uh, their dry lake bed flood. And so Fullerton and Lusma got to choose whether they wanted to land at Kennedy or White Sands. Well, they had both trained at White Sands, so that's where they wanted to go. The only problem was on the day that they were scheduled to land, uh, White Sands had uh, unusually high winds. The winds are a bad thing, but the, the worst thing was that it reduced visibility. So they decided uh, that, you know, flight rules were violated and they weren't going to land. So they got an extension of one day. I guess maybe my clue could have <laughs> could have referred to all these extensions. Um, <laughs> but what was really cool was the extension added an extra day on after they had already completed their entire uh, science schedule. So they got to sit on orbit with not a whole heck of a lot to do. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think it was Lusma. It, it might have been Fullerton, but I think it was Lusma said, you know, we basically got to spend an extra day in everybody's favorite vacation spot. Um, and they got to um, spend time uh, enjoying the views in a way that they hadn't been able to do, you know, with luxury before. And interestingly enough, uh, I don't know if it was in this final day, 
Um, but uh, Luce actually took a photo of what turned out to be a uh, Chinese nuclear base <laughs> that was supposed to be a secret. Um, and he, he took a photo of it because it was right next to this beautiful, uh, like turquoise lake. And uh, after the mission, uh, when he was in China, um, you know, kind of on their world tour, um, he showed off this picture and everybody kind of got quiet <laughs> and he couldn't, he didn't know hmm. why. And it turns out because yeah, he, uh, he, he didn't do it intentionally, but he, <laughs> yeah. he might have. That's just kind of funny that he's like, hey, check out this nuclear base that I photoed in your country. Like, <laughs> you know, like you wouldn't normally show people that. And I guess maybe they didn't understand or they thought that maybe that's what he was implying when, in fact, he was just talking about the lake. Right, right, right. No, no. He, mm-hmm. he held up the picture and he said, look at this gorgeous lake I, I took a picture of. And like, look how beautiful China is. And that sounds really aggressive, doesn't it? If you, you know, if yeah, you understand it, what's actually mm-hmm. there. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a, like a dig. But that, that wasn't what it was intended to mean. So when, when they were able to land, uh, they still had fairly high winds. So instead of being able to fly their overhead pattern, uh, they had to use a right base turn. So they basically approached the, the landing strip at, at right angles um, and then turn right to, you know, from base to their approach vector. And uh, this was kind of interesting because uh, Lusma was flying. So he's in the left seat. Um, so he couldn't see the, he couldn't see the, the runway. So Fullerton had to look out the window and call the turn when it was time to, uh, time to turn off base. So as they're coming in, they engaged, uh, the autopilot, which at that time wasn't complete. It didn't have a full understanding or a full ability to calculate how much energy they had to spend on approach. And so something weird happened. The autopilot actually closed the speed brakes and then opened them and then closed them and kind of fluttered them back and forth. You know, the, Lusma recognized it as a problem, but he he let it continue just so that they could collect data for uh, for troubleshooting later, um, which is a, a fantastic pilot instinct, right? So uh, the autopilot wasn't able to do the final landing, but it could do the rollout. So they disengage it, um, do the landing manually, and then re-engage it. Well, as they're coming into land... Uh, a couple of weird things happened, and I don't think we're 100% sure about exactly what happened. Uh, there, there's a little bit of disagreement. But basically, um, because the speed brakes hadn't been open the entire time, uh, they came in with too much speed. So they, they had a choice of either a high-speed touchdown on target or a low-speed touchdown that was really long, right? Go, go farther down the runway. And Lusma opted to land on target, but to land fast. And he almost slammed the nose of the shuttle into the ground. A- according to him, he, he actually pulled up at the last minute. If you watch the footage and I'll have a link to a YouTube video in the, in the show notes, you can see the, the shuttle pitch up, uh, right before the nose gear touched down. Like if that's not harrowing enough, the, uh, the landing gear in this video, if you watch it, it barely locks in a place before they touch down. I think they had, you know, a handful of seconds, like five seconds or something. So Charlie Bolden, um, who had been working on the uh, the autopilot at the time, actually says that they didn't realize that the autopilot was still partially engaged because instead of using push buttons to issue commands to the uh, to the vehicle, they uh, they did what's called hot stick downmoding. Um, so you know the hot stick is the is the flight stick, the joystick, um, and downmoding is going from the primary control method to actually 
uh, yanking the stick around. And so Bolden says that because they, since they were using the stick, uh, they, they didn't realize that the autopilot was still engaged and that it was the autopilot that pulled up and that Lusma probably had to actually push the nose back down to keep, uh, keep the vehicle in control. But either way, uh, Bolden, uh, says, yeah, Lusma's, uh, pilot instincts almost certainly saved the shuttle. This would have been Columbia, you know, almost certainly saved the, the orbiter from, crashing probably mm. not uh, i'm assuming wow. you know not not destroying or not not killing the occupants but you know definitely either destroying the airframe or causing a, a, a lot of expensive damage yeah that video is wild huh. isn't that crazy mm-hmm. yeah so you know they end up landing the shuttle safe um everything's great it's good to have pilots test flying spacecraft with wings is always a good thing but uh columbia actually picked up sort of a birthmark that followed her for the rest of her career white sands is covered in gypsum dust so so basically drywall right and so uh, gypsum dust just covered columbia the next time it flew it actually um puffed out a bunch of this dust once it got on orbit um, and everybody was kind of surprised because they thought they had gotten it all out. Well, no matter how much they cleaned the orbiter, it still had gypsum dust in every single nook and cranny uh, for, <laughs> for the rest of its career. It, it just, you know, and it, it's from this one landing. And of course, this was the only time that they ever landed a, a shuttle uh, in White Sands. So anyway, there, there's your clue. Uh, white hot stick is White Sands flying hot stick. All right, well, there's the clue. Makes sense now. <laughs> so what's the clue for next week? <laughs> All right, next week in 2006. It's a long one. Car crashes apply Delta V in 300 to 400 milliseconds. What about five months? I think I know this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks to Dennis for, for finding this uh, this event. So that's an interesting clue. Next week in 2006, car crashes apply Delta V in 300 to 400 milliseconds. What about five months? Well, it seems like a long time to apply Delta V for a car. <laughs> so must have something that's to do with clue. space then. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, if you think you know what that's about, just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Yeah, good luck, everybody. Let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. We just got two launches and then one other little event. The uh, first launch is on February 26th, and that is a launch of uh, the Astra 3.0 rocket. So this is cool. Yeah. Yeah. They are attempting to launch a small satellite of some sort, but do we know what that is? Like, No. No, we don't? Okay. No, we don't. No idea. (laughs) DARPA says no. I guess if DARPA says no, then we're not going to know. All right. But but the thing is, DARPA has been tweeting a lot about Astra recently, which is is really crazy (laughs) that uh, they went from nothing to just having a gazillion photos uh, published, including like there's a there's a photo of almost everybody who works for the company gathered in front of their rocket inside the shipping container. Speaking of the shipping container, this vehicle actually flew on a C-130 up to Kodiak Island uh, instead of taking a boat like normal. I guess they had some reason to get there fast. Yep. Sorry, I, I'm I'm so excited about this. <laughs> <laughs> I guess fingers crossed that it actually launches and uh, with any luck we'll see a successful yeah. mission to orbit. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so that's February 26th and the window is 2030 UTC through 001 UTC. So just after midnight. And I don't know if I mentioned it, but yeah, that's launching from Kodiak, so way up there in Alaska. So pretty cool launch. Uh, And then our second uh, launch for the week is going to take place on March 2nd. This will be a Falcon 9 Block 5 uh, launching the SpaceX CRS-20. So this is, uh, (laughs) we were talking just before the segment, right? We've managed to get through all 20. 
now. And so uh, this will be the last uh, crew resupply from the CRS-1 contract. And then from now on, it'll move on to the CRS-2 uh, contract, which is, I believe, the one that also brings in a Dream Chaser into the mix. Ooh. Yeah. Yep. So that's good stuff. So the launch, uh, like I said, will take place on March 2nd at uh, 0645 UTC, uh, instantaneous window, um, flying as typical out of... Uh, the Cape. Great. And that will meet up with the space station just after uh, our next episode comes out. So I'm going to go ahead and mention it now. So on Wednesday, March 4th, uh, coverage of the rendezvous and capture begins at 4.30 a.m. Eastern time on NASA TV. Capture is scheduled for 6 a.m. And then installation coverage begins at 7.30 a.m. Uh, again on Wednesday. And those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, so time to deal with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you. See you.